Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Rationalize, verb, to attempt to explain or justify one's own or another's behavior or attitude with logical, plausible reasons, even if these are not true or appropriate. Synonyms, justify, explain, explain away, account for, defend, vindicate, or excuse, as in, he tried to rationalize his behavior. Thanks, Google Dictionary, for providing such a lucid description of how we twist the Bible to get ourselves off the hook. Put your seatbelts on. This week, Richard and I revisit Lazarus and the rich man in the Gospel of Luke. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 93 of the Bible as Literature podcast, another year and another encounter with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. This weekend I was chatting with some parishioners at a wedding on Saturday and discussing how the repetition of the readings year upon year upon year exposes how the gospel teaches. And someone said to me, you know, Father Mark, there's always a deeper meaning in the gospel. And I said, actually, I disagree. I think that the gospel message is very forceful, very direct. And as you hear it over and over and over again, each time you hear it and make the effort to listen, it bores deeper into you. So it's not that the message has some hidden depth. It's that you have this boundless deep resistance to the message so each time it bores a little bit deeper into your conscience you discover something that was always there but it's staring you right in the face it's not that the text has layers it's that we have layers yes. our sin has layers we have to strip away our sin layer by layer to get to the core to get to the heart of the sin and that's what the gospel does is it gets deeper and deeper as it peels those layers of the onion of our sin back even and perhaps especially the preacher and the story of the rich man and lazarus is a story that keeps on giving each year. This keeps boring down. You know, when we hear this, oftentimes our reaction is, we're not like the rich man. I'm not the rich man. The rich man is someone who's really rich. I'm not that rich. I'm well off. I'm comfortable. But I'm not rich. If I were really rich, if I were really well off, I could afford to buy that more expensive table, or I could afford to buy the electronic gadget that I want, or I could afford this or afford that. This is how we think in wealthy Western societies. And so we fall into the trap of this lie that we're in the middle. But the fact of the matter is, we are rich in worldly terms. We are the oppressor in worldly terms, unequivocally. And anyone who thinks otherwise is committing blasphemy because you are undermining the judgment of the text, but you are poor 
in the gospel. And this reading is calling for an inversion of that situation. Right. For us, being poor is being able to imagine being richer than we are. But just because we can imagine richer doesn't mean that we're not already rich. If you have a computer or a smartphone and the ability to listen to this podcast, if you're able to hear it in your car on the way to work, or while you're sipping your coffee, or while you're browsing the web, or while you're doing your workout. Isn't that cute how people in wealthy countries have to find time to exercise because their lives are otherwise so easy physically? If you fall into any of those categories, you are the rich man. You are the oppressor, unequivocally. And we use this also in the reverse. We use this to judge whether someone is really poor or not. If we see a poor person spending their money on cigarettes, oh, how can they be that poor? If we see refugees coming across the Mediterranean and they've got a smartphone or even two smartphones, well, how poor can they be? They've got a smartphone, whereas we have a smartphone for every member of the family. In addition to this and that and a garage with two cars in it, but that person isn't really poor because they have a smartphone. If you are fleeing civil strife, and you walked away from your home, from your family, and you were one of the few lucky ones who were able to leave with your children and your wife, if you have a cell phone, that cell phone may be your only connection to civilization and your only way to navigate across borders to get to some future hopeful situation you can settle your family in. So It's functional. In other words, you are the addressee of this text, which means you are under judgment. When you see a poor person as you walk down the street in St. Paul, you have no right to comfort your ego that you shouldn't give them money because they're just going to use it on alcohol. Because what right have you to judge them if they're an alcoholic? I'm sick and tired of the way people rationalize and try to systematize and integrate the sledgehammer of the gospel into their ideology that's meant to self-justify. On the one hand, they'll say how I'm actually poor because I'm not as rich as that person, but that person is not really poor because they've got these things. We always try to get out from the judgment ourselves, but then when someone else reveals our shame, We then try to cover that up, too. This is why the gospel has to keep peeling away the layers of the onion, is because as soon as it peels away the layers of the onion, we try to wrap that onion right back up. You want to understand scripture? Every time there's an evil character, just draw a line through the name or the title of the character and write your name. And every time you see the word Lord or Jesus or God, draw a line through it and say, the judge. Just write the word judge down in scripture. And then find everyone who you think is the good guy and scratch their name out or their title out and write in the phrase, the person I'm persecuting. If you read scripture that way, there's hope for you. If you read it any other way, you are self-righteous and you are the problem. Right. And this parable can really bring out the self-righteous in people who imagine that they're not rich. Do not allow yourself any oxygen. Just don't give yourself oxygen when you're hearing scripture, and God will save you. If you give yourself oxygen, then you're saving yourself, and there's no hope for you. I don't know how to be more explicit than that, Richard. So if you're listening to this, we're just going to make the assumption you are the rich man. Absolutely. Okay, that's how we're going to start. You're the rich man. So 
With this, let's begin and turn to the parable. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Now, that word habitually is an interpretation, isn't it, Richard? Right. So we're looking at the NASB, which uses this word habitually. The word dressed for those grammarians out there is in the imperfect. So that can mean that he did it more than once. It can be interpreted as habitually. But one of the reasons I get nervous about this word habitually is because sometimes I've heard that it's okay to have money as long as we don't love money. You know, when Paul says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Oh, money is not the root of all evil, some people explain, but the love of money. My response to that is always, okay, if you don't love it, why do you still have it? Why don't you get rid of it? I can think of plenty of places that would love to have your money. Let's just give it away now since you don't love it. It's a play on words. It's self-justification. Everybody wants to find an excuse to justify their lifestyle. So then people may twist this to say, oh, well, he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Well, you know, I have a nice suit, but I only bring it out for good occasions. This person, he always flaunts his wealth by always dressing in purple and fine linen. That's how I'm different from him. And once you try to find that wedge to drive apart the person being judged in the story and you, then it's a problem. So this word habitually makes me a little bit nervous. Although the grammar could possibly justify it, it makes me nervous because it can be a wedge to lessen the impact of the judgment. It is, as my wife said years ago when we still lived out east, she said this during the Iraq war, whether you drive an economy car or you drive a pickup truck, you are pumping Iraqi blood into your vehicle. You are not justified because your car is economical. We have to get this through our head that we are accountable. We are corrupt. And there is no escaping it. And every attempt in theology, philosophy, and psychology that we make to escape our own corruption condemns us and jeopardizes the well-being of our neighbor. And here Lazarus is the neighbor par excellence. I mean, he's a functional character. He appears in scripture as different characters, but it's the same function. Lazarus, my God helps, my God helped, my God is my helper. But it expresses this dependence on God. If you leave yourself oxygen to self-justify, you can't possibly be dependent on God. In this sense, Lazarus truly represents the baptized, which is why the reading on Palm Sunday is so beautiful. It's baptismal because here you have Lazarus of four days, which is the same functional character, different narrative character, same functional character, completely dependent on the father of Jesus. And even Jesus is helpless. But then he calls him back and it's this beautiful story leading into the Passion Week. So just want to make that connection for people on the importance of the name and the function Lazarus in the New Testament. It reminds me also of the paralytic at the pool who was waiting for someone to put him in the pool and he had to wait for Jesus to allow him to walk again. You know, this is a person who's in the position of complete dependency. And just like we like to separate ourselves from the rich man, we like to try to be as much as we can like the poor person because then we know the poor person is one who wins in the story. He doesn't go to hell. So we like to be that person. We like to think of ourselves as completely dependent on God. But as long as you can walk to the hospital when you're sick, as long as you can drive yourself to the hospital, as long as you can call an ambulance, 
you can't be Lazarus. It's like our good friend Nicholas Wug said in his article last week about this whole question of wealth and prosperity. He explained that if you truly obey the commandment perfectly, you give everything away, which means your death. In other words, if you are still drawing breath, you can't possibly be anything but the oppressor. Scripture is squeezing you and pressuring you so that you have no escape. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. This is an anti-Eucharist. We sit at the table of the Father as he discusses his Torah with Jesus and we beg like the woman who begged to eat the crumbs, the Gentile woman who begged to eat the crumbs, we beg to eat the crumbs that fall from that table. And that's what the Eucharist is. It's the teaching of the Father fed to us unto life. And here, Lazarus is sitting at the table of the rich man with the temporary bread, and the rich man, you know, isn't even sharing the crumbs from the temporary table. So it's against table fellowship, and it's against the table of the kingdom, Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In other words, you think you're achieving something, but in the end, everybody fails. Everybody loses. There are no winners in life. Everybody dies. There is an end game. I like the taste of Ecclesiastes here. The poor man died. The rich man died. The same end came to them both. And that's what we kept talking about in Ecclesiastes. One was rich, one was poor. They both died. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And this is a technical fulfillment of the Beatitudes in Luke, which is this reversal. If you're happy, you're going to be sad. If you're full, you're going to be hungry. If you're comfortable, you're going to be uncomfortable. In other words, the kingdom will turn everything on its head because the kingdom will correct everyone's priorities. The rich man, for good reason, is not comfortable with this reversal of fortune because he still tries to get Lazarus to serve him. Abraham, send Lazarus to bring me some water. He still doesn't get the message. He still doesn't get the message. Sure, he's in agony, but he's saying, please send him. The rich man was sent to Lazarus to feed Lazarus to take care of his wounds. This is the same as the Good Samaritan. You know, the Good Samaritan ran across somebody who was wounded and used his own wealth to bind up his wounds. Here someone was laid in front of the rich man and was completely ignored. He misunderstands this. And then what does Abraham say? Child, you are not the father here. I am the father. You're asking me to send a servant to you because you need a servant. Listen for a second, child. This is why the priest is called father in our tradition, and it's very important. And you cannot strip the title of its household function because the church is not a business. The church is not modeled after a franchise. The church is not a club. The church, in the sense of Paul's teaching in the New Testament, is a household. And Paul co-ops the paterfamilias function 
Because the only way to oppose human self-righteousness and stubbornness and arrogance is with a parental figure. It's the one universal human function that everyone understands. Even now, if someone is acting up, you put their mother on the phone, they control themselves. You see, it's basic psychology. It's basic human behavioral wisdom that Abraham is the father and even the rich man has to become a child before his dad. You never ever become something other than the child of your parents, even when they treat you as brothers and sisters. I was just listening to a story today about someone who became very rich and he was brought up very poor. And he said, you know, when I see my dad watching a TV show on his little tiny TV, I go to Best Buy, I buy a 54-inch TV and I bring it to him because when I was little, he did what he needed to to take care of me. And out of thanks to him, I want to give back to him. And so even though the son is giving to the father, it's because the father first gave to him. And it's out of gratitude to the father. And here we have the rich man asking Abraham to do things for him. But there's something very important for a Western audience specifically that I want to clarify about your example. Because anybody who thinks that they owe their parents and can pay them back is a fool. That's not what you're saying. You're talking about a Eucharistic attitude. Gratitude. And in fact, that son, if he's scriptural, shouldn't even worry about being kind to his father. He should be kind to the stranger in his father's name because his father is the functional provider. But if he is kind to his father, he better understand that he has a debt he can't repay his father. Correct. It's an important clarification. I understand you. I want to make sure that our listeners understand you on that point, Richard. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. In other words, friends, you have one life and you have one death and you have one chance to make it count. There are no third chances because your life, technically in scripture, is already the second chance. Now, what's interesting about the rich man is that he was rich in the Torah. We'll hear later that he had five brothers, five keepers. He was rich in God's instruction and did nothing because of it. That was his second chance, was the instruction. Now what? You want a third chance? There is no third chance. And here, no matter what you believe, no matter what tradition you're from or not, we can all agree that you have one life and after you're gone, that's it. Right. I think it's significant that it's not just fixed. The chasm is not just fixed so that people from there can't come over here, but it's also so that people from here can't go there. The chance for mercy even is over. Exactly. And it's insulting. It goes on. Listen to this. And he said, then I beg you. He keeps calling him father. And this is a buildup in the poetry of the Greek because he keeps calling him father, but not acting like a son. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send to my father's house. What do you mean, my father's house? How can you say that Abraham is your father and talk about your father's household in the flesh, knowing full well that what you're concerned about is the patrimony of your father's fleshly household? Right. We can see in the Old Testament the correct way is you would say, your servant, my father. You would always have to identify, even if this is your earthly patrimony, you have to show that this person is subservient to the king, to the ultimate father. Boaz rescued the line of Elimelech, and Naomi did not praise Boaz or Elimelech. She praised the Lord. And now this guy is still referring to his earthly dad. 
and saving the earthly line. He missed the point entirely. And I want to stay on this point just for one more moment because originally we were saying we're always trying to drive a wedge between us and the rich person. So we say, well, okay, I'm not as bad as the rich man. I recognize God. But you have to understand from this verse that everything has to refer back to God as your father. You no longer have the right to refer to your earthly patrimony. You no longer have the right to assume anything comes from your father, from your line, from your family, from your job, from your effort. Correct. But it all comes from God alone. And that is why Abraham is functional here as a father, because he's the uber patriarch in scripture. He's the dad of dads. And he's emasculated. His patriarchy defers to God. This is why Abraham is so great. In other words, Abraham is your father, but he is your father in the teaching, which reckons you unto righteousness through Abraham, his faith. This is why it's a big deal in the New Testament. I always thought that this passage was kind of funny, that it was the bosom of Abraham, because we don't hear about the bosom of Abraham elsewhere. Abraham doesn't speak outside of Genesis, and all of a sudden we have this long dialogue with Abraham. No kidding. Talking about his bosom, and nowhere else does it talk about the bosom of Abraham being the place you go to when you die. It's kind of peculiar that way. But I think why this is important is because Abraham, like you said, is the uber father. In Scripture, a euphemism for death is to go the way of your fathers. Yes. And everyone's father in the gospel is Abraham. That's where you go. So to go to the bosom of your father is going the way of all flesh, but it's also the way of the fathers, meaning that this is how every generation has gone. You are dying in the same way as everyone else who's gone before you, and you're even buried in the same place where everyone was before you. This is the way of the ancient world as your family was buried together. So death and going the way of your father is important. So Abraham here plays the function as, like you said, the uber father. Now he says, now he's speaking about his earthly father here because he's self-righteous and stubborn, even in Sheol. And he says to Abraham, he's talking to Abraham. This is what's so unbelievable. The arrogance is palpable, and it reflects the arrogance that all of us have when speaking to authority. Contemporary Hellenistic Western society where everyone's an individual, everyone has something to say, everyone's a reference, blah, blah, blah. We actually think it's okay to speak to our senior this way, but it's not okay. He tells Abraham, I have five brothers. Okay, and of course, this is a metaphor. Your brother is your keeper. You have five keepers. It's the law which keeps you. In order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Notice again, in order that he may warn them, he's again trying to function as someone who's ordering around Lazarus. He still thinks Lazarus is at his beck and call. You have two patriarchs here. You have Abraham who allowed God to emasculate him. And in doing so, was lifted up as a true father and a true authority figure. And you have the rich man who still thinks he's the paterfamilias and gets to tell everyone what to do and is too big for his britches and won't even bow his head before Abraham while he's in Sheol. The psychology of the text is very forceful because on the one hand, we know that this chasm is uncrossable because you have one life and when you die, you're done. But this idiot couldn't cross the chasm while he was alive because he was so self-righteous and so arrogant. The text is showing you how you are already condemned in the middle of your second chance because of your hubris. Abraham said very shrewdly, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, read scripture. 
You had scripture from the beginning. They have scripture now. Read scripture. They don't even need the resurrection. That's what I find interesting here. All they need is Moses and the prophets to understand that you get a chance to take care of the poor and you're going to end up in the same place as the poor anyway. But, and this is my favorite part of the story, and it really hit me Sunday when we heard this gospel as a community, harder than ever before, how ugly the response of the rich man is in verse 30. But he said, no. In other words, Abraham gave him an instruction. Let them hear the word of God. And his response to the word of God is N-O. I want our listeners to let that response sink into their heads. Abraham, who's the uber father, the uber authority, second only to God himself in scripture. Abraham, who's our father in God's teaching, told him, listen to the teaching, and he said, no. What hope is there for someone who rejects God's teaching? And then after he said no, he continued, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, Moses and the prophets is not enough. Abraham is saying, with all due respect, if you didn't understand the Old Testament, New Testament is going to help you out, buddy. According to Abraham and according to the New Testament, all you need is Moses and the prophets. Not only that, anything in addition is not going to help. And that's the key here, because people will often say, give me a sign, show me a miracle, inspire me. This is how the wealthy in Western societies talk. They want to be inspired. Well, you can't be inspired because you have to save your extra 500 to buy that stupid end table you're fixating on or that stupid whatever. That's the point that you're not going to be inspired. Nothing's going to help you if you're not willing to humble yourself and hear the instruction. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Again, the New Testament isn't going to help them. Miracles aren't going to help them. The most amazing feats aren't going to help them. And this is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy actually talks about this. If someone comes to your town working signs and wonders and then proceed to give you a word that contradicts the Torah, their signs and wonders are cursed. That's exactly how Abraham is teaching here about the resurrection. I think it's funny how he says, even if someone rises from the dead, someone, I don't know. Oh, who, I don't know. What, I don't know what who could we, we be talking about here? Who could we be here? talking about it's here? It's only the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> <laughs> right. In that context, I find it amazing because believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not enough. It's not enough. If you do not have Moses and the prophets, then you can't understand the resurrection. In other words, those little Bibles they give out, you know, with the Psalms and the New Testament, aren't Bibles. They're not scripture. How can it be scripture without Moses and the prophets? You can read in that little tiny New Testament that all you need is Moses and the prophets, which is not contained in this book. Right, so it's not scripture. I don't know how else to say it to people. This argument that has somehow survived to this century, that Jesus is a nice God and the God of the Old Testament is mean, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's silly. Have you actually read the New Testament? Are you sure that this God is nice? It doesn't seem so nice here. <laughs> no, no. It, actually, he, this is a God that fixed a chasm just in case after you're dead, you felt like being nice. You can't be nice. Now, he's nice to people that you mistreat, but he's not nice to you. 
And he's not nice to his only begotten son. It's not nice for you. If this parable sounds nice, you're hearing it wrong. You are the rich man. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.